Hi, this is Scott Roche, author of the Esho St. Clair novels, and you are listening to The Melting Podcast. You're listening to The Melting Podcast, a writing variety show featuring a little of everything from everyone, everywhere. Happy mid-October, Lexiconosaurs and Workchefs. Welcome to episode 68 of the Melting Podcast. I'm your head chef, A.F. Grappin. You really had to think about that 68 there, didn't you? I was teasing. 68? Eight. And I'm your grill mistress, Erin Gasmar. It's mid-October. It's fall. It actually feels like fall where we are. Finally. It went from 90 degrees to 55 degrees as fast as if it saw a state trooper. I, 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 I get it. I, I got it. Well done. That's a nice mm-hmm. analogy. Thank you. I saw it on the internet. <laughs> gay internet. Did you say yay internet or gay internet? Yay internet. Because it's all one internet. It is. <laughs> rainbows. Sunshine. So many rainbows. Anyway. Anyway, but yeah, so the internet can't get married. Oh, wait, it can. It's fine. Anyway. What would it marry? There's only one. It's so lonely. Anyway. Anyway. So, <laughs> you know what else I really love about the internet? Me. I'm on the internet. Sure. No, what I really love about the internet is that we can instantly communicate with people. And they can use the internet to instantly communicate with us. Innocently or instantly? (laughs) First one, then the other. (laughs) But they can instantly communicate with us in the form of, you know, submitting things to us. Sending us stuff. They can send us stuff. I like it when they send us stuff. I love it when they send us stuff. Like this thing that was sent to us. This is a stuff sent to us by one of our favorite word chefs. Me. You are one of our favorites, but I'm talking about James Silverstein. Yay! Mm-hmm. He has sent us another main ingredient story. This one featuring characters you might have heard of. Maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. People who listen to a literary podcast might not read much. Yeah. But they're in the public domain now, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So he sent us a Sherlock Holmes story. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I didn't get to be too involved with this one because, you know, boys. But... Mm-hmm. It's still fun. Yeah. So, enjoy. Bon appetit. However Improbable by James Silverstein Editor's Note These singed papers were found in the remains of the Wilfordshire house of Ayub Melkor, the Afghanistani pianist. Why the papers were there is anyone's guess, and while the late Mr. Melkor was found dead in the house fire that gutted his family estate, it is worth noting that the family demanded autopsy indicates that Mr. Melkor may have died due to allergic reaction to a bee sting. That spring was rife with clients. Holmes put the Scathwick case aside when we were requested to find some conclusion to the death of Walter St. Vincent Ambrose, the fifth-generation heir of the Duke of Cornwall. The request had been an urgent one, but it wasn't until the nature of the murder was given to us that my companion showed any spark of interest. Byron St. Vincent Ambrose came to the flat in London to speak to us, 
admitting that he had very little actual contact with his brother. The two had a spat over land long held, but never actually visited by the family, and the feud had turned venomous over certain letters exchanged years previous. Holmes listened intently to the content of the letters, and I could see the gleam in his eye draw more sharply. I thought, perhaps, this would be the exact remedy for the vexation of Scathwick's problem. After Byron left, Holmes took to packing immediately. I reminded him that the next train that would take us to Cornwall wouldn't leave until the next day, but Holmes curtly informed me that Cornwall was not his destination, that I should take the train on the morrow, and that he would meet me at the St. Vincent Ambrose Estates. In the meantime, I should keep my eyes and ears open, as he would want a full report. He then told me that I should also be prepared for a multitude of house cats, as the small scratch on Byron's wrist would indicate such things in his brother's home. I took the train the next day. I won't go into long details over my stay at the estate in Cornwall, save to say that the St. Vincent Ambrose family are excellent hosts, and they have an enormous wine cellar. What they did not have, however, was a single cat. I never mentioned this to Holmes. It seemed unnecessary at the time. When Sherlock arrived after two days, he had significant suspicions and evidence to point out Byron's young son as the murderer of Uncle Walter. The killing was accidental, not planned, and while the fallout was something ferocious in the papers, the family itself remained strong. More to the point, Sherlock, cats notwithstanding, seemed to be back on his game, and as we took the train back to London, I could already sense that the gears were turning on the matter of Scathwick once again. But they say into every life, rain must fall. When we returned to the flat, it had been raining for three straight days, and the weather was turning into a full bluster storm. While I retired with pipe and a good book, as well as correspondence that required answering, Sherlock began busying himself with the case. After the fifth day of rain, I began to worry. While Holmes had never been the most talkative of men, I found him even more close-lipped than usual. When I pressed him gently for word on the progress with the Scathwick case, he snapped at me, telling me that he was working as hard as he could and that the interruptions would only serve to make things take longer. While my initial reaction was to remind him that the younger Scathwick was likely dead, I knew that the argument that would ensue was not a hill I wished to die on. I let it be. Thankfully, the next morning Inspector Lestrade came by with more work for the great detective, this time in the form of the theft of very sensitive papers that Scotland Yard could make neither heads nor tails over. Holmes seemed hesitant to take the work on, but I, thinking another distraction might actually do the detective some good, encouraged the employment. Finally, Holmes relented, and the game was afoot. We spent the next three days looking at the offices of Wilson and Chambers Limited. There, Holmes once again saw things I could not fathom. He sent word to his irregulars to look for a man with a specific type of boot. Word came back, and a game of cat and mouse following ensued. At the end of the third day, we cornered our quarry in a small, run-down shack at the docks. The rain had been spoiling much of the thrill of the hunt for me up until that moment, but now we were in the thick of it. I remember very distinctly working our way to the sides of the building, 
Estrade's men keeping back in case the villain bolted. I had my pistol at the ready, and Holmes was leading me toward the door. It was there he paused and looked downward. I followed his eyes, unsure what he was looking at, but knowing what I myself saw. His hands were trembling uncontrollably. Even in the depths of his sickness with cocaine, I had never seen him like this. He spoke softly, but I could tell with the very slight shudder in his voice that he was exerting some great control over something horribly wrong with himself. It's not him. He turned and walked away from the place. After waving off Lestrade's men, and promising an explanation later, I raced to follow Holmes back to the flat. When I got there, he had taken his solution and was staring once again at the Scathwick case's papers. I'd never seen him like this. He looked almost maniacally vital, but there was something dying in his eyes. It brought terror on me. Holmes, you speak of Moriarty as the spider at the center of a web of crime. Is this him? Is this once again him? I had hoped the mention of the great detective's nemesis would break the melancholy Holmes felt and spark him into action. He looked away from me, out of the rain. Then he hung his head and stared at his hands. His voice was low and ragged. I wish it were so, Watson. I truly wish it were. Then some of this, any of this, would make sense. I am not pleased to admit this, but I falsified the later stories. Reifenbach. What a mess. I wanted to give the detective a clean ending, a break that would allow him to fade away from memory. But he had become too popular. My editor from the Strand began pressuring me. Friends and acquaintances began to do so as well. On one particular morning, there was a small throng of literary well-wishers who knocked loudly at the door to the flat and would not stop until I'd shooed them away. They'd wanted to be sure Sherlock was dead. It was grisly. Who would do that to someone whose friend had just died? It was worse than that, of course. I had to play out the morning. It was only half play, I suppose, but I couldn't. I had to wear a metaphorical funeral mask. My friend was dead. I had to accept that. But what made it worse was that I could show people the flat if I wanted to. Sherlock was long gone. I would go to see him from time to time, out in the country in Sussex Downs. He lived under care there. I had taken all the money from the stories and put them through this solicitor and that company to make sure no one could track it. No one but him, I suppose. He was being kept well. I would visit from time to time and watch him stare out the window. He was silent, and so still I often wanted to reach out to see if he was still alive. In June of 1904, I found that he had been moved into the attic of the house, and when I demanded explanation, I was told it was for his own safety. He had torn the wallpaper from his room and attempted to eat it. I should have known. It had a B pattern on it. I went up to the attic. There, huddled in a pool of sunlight from a high window, was the shell of what was once the great detective. He shivered as I came close, and suddenly from his breast came the most piteous, heart-wrecking sob I had ever heard. 
Watson! John! Is that you? It was the first time I'd heard him speak in over a year. It is me, old friend. It's me. Are you well? You know well that I am not. I am at the end, John. I knelt beside him. He had the smell I'd learned to identify so well in Afghanistan. The smell of death creeping up on a man. What, man? No need to think that just yet. You... He turned toward me, and his eyes were full of pain and fear. I'd never seen the like in any man, and certainly not him. I couldn't do it, John. Eliminate the impossible, and whatever is left, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. I nodded and took his hand. He <laughs> sobbed once more. <sighs> but it was all impossible. Wasn't it? Tell me, Sherlock. Help me understand. He drew a long, ragged <laughs> breath. Scathwick. That thing. That impossible thing. It comes in the bees, Watson. It comes in the bees. It's heralded by them. It eats. It eats. Oh, John, it eats! He began to tremble. I took off my coat and wrapped it around him, but he shrugged it off and violently grabbed my face, then pulled me close so we were eye to eye. It eats! He cried out, his voice a throat-scraping scream. Ah! It eats minds! With that, he released me and began to seizure. I tried to help him as best I could, but in the end I could do little more than hold him and call for help. The orderlies aided me in getting him back into his bed. I sat, watching him, for the rest of the day. He stared at me. But there was nothing left behind those eyes. He was gone. The great detective, my best friend, was no more. Editor's Note the following is scribbled at the bottom of the last paper, next to a small stain. The author is unknown. Found these papers in Dad's trunks from Afghanistan. Probably forgeries. There's a newspaper clipping as well. Something about an author dying from a bee sting in London. Crushed bee was folded up in these papers. Funny thing. Larger than usual. Stinger missing. Bees? Bees. Bees. Bees? Bees. 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 Oh, God. That explains what that slight buzzing has been lately in the disaster kitchen. Yeah. Well, now that we got that story out there, maybe the bees will follow it. I doubt it. Oh, dear. Yeah. Poor well, Holmes. Eh, it'll be fine. Not really. <laughs> it's not <laughs> fine. It wasn't fine. But, man, that was a good story. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think... You do? I think... You do? On occasion. Which one? This one? No. Oh. No. So, I think... What? God damn it. Aaron... <laughs> 
I, I think it's time for us to... Uh, you think? Son of a bitch, Aaron. I, here, listen to a promo. Archivos, the new story development application from WonderThink Studios, will change the way you look at stories. Archivos takes a different approach to documenting your story setting. While most wikis and storytelling frameworks focus on documenting the elements of your stories, Archivos is more interested in the connections between those story elements. It's the relationships between characters and places and events that express the true structure and allure of your stories. As a storyteller, that's the awareness you need to strengthen and refine the crafting of your stories. Archivos really is the story development tool for today's storytellers. Learn more about Archivos at www.archivos.digital. That's A-R-C-H-I-V-O-S dot digital. Archivos. Your stories illuminated. Hey. Huh? Everyone's a critic. Yeah. But especially you. Yeah. Not because you're judgmental or anything. No, I'm not. But because we have this segment called a food critic. Uh Uh-huh. And it's time for one. Oh, yay. Oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay. Oh, yay. No, just one. Oh, okay. So, let's critique. Let's do a food critic segment. This is where uh, we review a book, or it has been in the past, like an audio, you know, um, drama or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. Um, In this case, it's a book that I have read, and we... It would be difficult to review it if you hadn't read it. And we feed it into your ear holes, and hopefully you will go get it. Wait, the review or the book? Uh Uh-huh. Oh, yay. Yeah. One first one, then the other. We've had this conversation before. I feel like we're in a loop. So this episode's selection is Make Bright the Arrows by S.A. Hutchton. S.A. Hutchton. Starla. Shh. S.A. No, she... It's Starla. Starla. The S.A. is for her books that are a little more adult content. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah. So... Tell me about the book. Okay. Make Bright the Arrows is... The title. The title. And it's a book. Yay! <laughs> um, We're so smart. It's, it's in the um, sort of sci-fi, semi-quasi-western-ish genre, which... That's specifically unspecific. Except for it's, you know, Firefly-ish. Good. Uh-huh. Yeah, this is, honestly, I would say... Hutchton's love letter to Firefly. Yes, it's it's very much in that vein of you know we we have we have science we've got spaceships we've got some technology. It's not like super like it's not hard. Constantly here's the science behind everything. There's there's some explanations. Mm-hmm. It's moderately sciency, um, but you do still have you know the gunslinger character and mm-hmm. that kind of frontier ish. Uh, just, just the Western feel. Yeah, it's it's a good, it's a very nice atmosphere to it, even though it's in space. Moving on. Yeah. So, what age group is this geared towards? This is um, at the youngest, like older YA. There are some adult themes involved. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing that you're going to run into like explicit scenes, but there are th- adult themes that are talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, the main character. Uh, who is also the narrator, is Lena. And she is the tough of the ship. Okay. Um, I mean, she's not the captain. She's obviously not the doctor, not the engineer. She she literally is just the tough. And she's, she's a, Jane. She's Jane. 
Okay. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember. I think she's like 18 or 19. Mm-hmm. She's she's not old. She's not super young, but she has been through some shit. Um, and the the main incident of the story is that while going to make a delivery, the guy that they were you know delivering to, they find that he has a early teenage girl, basically, tra- like locked under the floor. Well, that's just lovely. Mm-hmm. And when, you know, he dies, they, this girl's just by herself. She's like 14 Mm -hmm. or 15 years old. And she's just there. They've, Lena's the one who finds her. So, um, the girl, her name's Delilah. Mm -hmm. Um, she kind of latches on to Lena as kind of a mother hen type thing. It's kind of a duckling kind of deal. Um, and Lena's like, what the heck do I do? I don't know anything about kids. (laughs) Cause she didn't really get to have much of a childhood, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, the, but Delilah is very quirky. There's something that's not quite right mm-hmm. that you're, that they're discovering why she was trapped down there. Why the guy who was supposedly a preacher had her down there. Mm-hmm. Um, why Lila seems to have these inexplicable, unexplainable, whatever the word is abilities like Mm -hmm. looking at this issue with the ship's engines and immediately coming up with a bypass fixing something and just being like yeah it's it's fixed very nice yeah so and she's just just prodigy yeah okay so so you've given us a little on the characters Mm -hmm. um do you feel like these are well fleshed out characters feel like people you could actually meet I absolutely do. Well, I mean, Hutchton is is a favorite author of mine anyway. Mm-hmm. She has yet to write something that I haven't enjoyed, and Make Bright the Arrows is no exception. The cast, and this is one thing I really loved about this book, is I would say 90 to 95% female. Wow. It is almost solely female. The entire ship, the crew, is all female. Wow. Yeah. Um, I mean, like I said, the captain, the two engineers who are twins. <laughs> oh, God. Irish. They're Irish or Scottish. I don't remember. But yeah, they were. Uh-huh. Oh, my. Uh-huh. Um, and then again, Lila, a lot of their business contacts are female. There there, there's some guys involved. I mean, it's but they have their own interests. They have their own backstories. They have their own personal conflicts. Um, they have pastimes. They have wants and needs outside of, you know, the main the issue. Story. Yeah, they're they're people. And I love it. Um, like I said, Hutchinson's always been really good at that. And she is really good at making people so real and genuine that the smallest interaction will bring tears to your eyes. This is something that I have to bring up about this book. She made me cry. I'm listening to the audiobook of this on my way home from work, and I am literally like seven minutes from the end of the damn book. And with literally a piece of candy, I cried. This whole thing just... Mm. I don't want to spoil anything. Honestly, just saying it was a piece of candy might spoil it for some other people. So sorry about that. But seriously, I cried. Wow. There was so much reality behind it. Very, very mm-hmm. nice. So how did you feel the pace of the story moved along? The book was actually shorter than I expected. It, it, or was it, it just fast-paced? No, no. I mean, it, it just it's, – everything was just moving along so well. I didn't even notice the time passing. 
it it was just that crisp. Nice. It was it was it was yeah, it was just really nice. It was so easy to sink into. I hated when I'd be done with my commute and I would reached work and I had to turn it off. <laughs> um it's it's a it's a good length. Mm-hmm. It's not a super it's not like a super epic. It's not, you know, a one I mean, if you were to sit, to sit down and read it, you could read it in an afternoon or okay. an evening, an after evening. Um just it's a good comfy read. There's there's action, there's exploration, there's like I said there's the science. Mm-hmm. It's it's really good stuff. All right, so you seem to have been giving a pretty glowing review here. So, mm-hmm. uh, how does that translate into spoons from just, one to five? On a scale of one to five spoons, I would give this one like four and a half. Okay. Um, it doesn't quite get the full five. It just it didn't have that one hundred percent wow factor. Mm-hmm. It's it's a wonderful read, and if I have you know if I have to choose, if I can't do a Point five, I'll go ahead and give it the five just because I mean it's that good yeah. for it. It, it. It's earned it. But basically, on a scale of one to ten, it gets a nine. <laughs> That's kind of where I'm going here. But I mean, it's it's a really good solid book. I highly recommend it, especially if you're a fan of Firefly. This is really good stuff. Awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah, go pick up uh, Make Bright the Arrows on Amazon, Audible, wherever fine books are sold. It's a very fine book. Man. This whole recording thing. Yeah. It's quite a process. It is. And the critiquing, you know, it makes me hungry. Process. Hungry. Hungry. Hungry for food. Yeah. Processed foods. Processed foods. Let's do it. Okay. Hey, guys. Yeah. Yeah. My cheese tastes artificial. I'm so sorry. It's like it, it's been put through machines and had stuff done to it. Like, like processed. processed? Yeah, it's like processed. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Why would you do that to yourself? Ooh. You know what? If you've done that to yourself, we should do that to words. I like this idea. Well, good, because you've already done this to words, and I have to read it. <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah, this is a processed food segment. Hey, Theo, how do these work? <laughs> Don't ask the dish boy questions. I know, you know better than it's that. It's just fun to watch him panic briefly. <laughs> oh, shit! What are you talking briefly? <laughs> so our processed food segments are where we take famous monologues from... We try to do TV shows and movies, because we really cover books with our mystery meals. Yeah. Um, so we take monologues, and we do plays, from TVs, movies, and plays, and then we put them through a couple layers of Google Translate. By a couple, mean like six. Six, seven, somewhere, yeah. At least five. And then back into English. So Aaron is going to read this episode's selection for you, the original monologue. And then she's going to read the processed version. So why don't you tell them what the monologue is? This monologue is from the movie Dogma. It is when Bethany is talking about the moment she lost her faith. It is titled, Bethany's Loss of Faith. I know, shocking. I know, that's very So, the original monologue. I'm I'm, I'm not going to really act all of this. I want you to hear the words. Yeah. I remember the exact moment. I was on the phone with my mother, and she was trying to counsel me through this thing, and nothing she was saying was making me feel any better. And she said, Bethany, God has a plan. I was... I was so angry with her. I was like... What about my plans, you know? 
I had planned to have a family with my husband. Wasn't that plan good enough for God? A long pause. <laughs> Sorry, it, it's significant. Yeah, and it gets translated. Yeah, apparently not. I hate thoughts like that, but you know, they come to you with age. When you're a kid, you never question the whole faith thing. Nope. God's in heaven and he's, she's always got her eye on you. I would give anything to feel that way again. All right, so this has been translated through six languages. Punjabi, Italian, Maori, French, Latin, and Greek. And then back to English. <laughs> so this is that same monologue again after all of this translating. Good luck, me. <laughs> huh. I remember the good. <laughs> I was on the phone with my mother and was trying to board. It said good. <laughs> Bethany, there is a plan of God. I was very angry with him. I was just my decision. You know it. <laughs> my mind. And I do not plan the family is great for God. It's not a long wait. <laughs> and not these ideas hate me, but I do not know what the age is. And the boy, not the whole question of faith. This is not a God in heaven. I see what you will always hear and that will give you. <laughs> <laughs> so basically none of that this is your phone that's, your... that's mine uh, so basically none of that makes any sense that's the part of what makes it so much fun oh google translate yeah how we abuse thee <laughs> barely um, i am taking i'm up to take suggestions for other monologues you would want us to do in processed food so shoot us a message in the facebook group or on twitter and <laughs> yay <laughs> I remember the good. I remember the good. No, you don't. I do. I oh, when I read it. Yeah, you did read you, it. You you don't remember things. No, I don't. I don't like. Uh, I don't remember to go to iTunes. No. No. And 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 leave a review, leave stars to increase our visibility. No, you don't remember that, but but they should. They should. They should remember to go to iTunes and leave us a review and many stars and tell all their friends. Yes. Yeah. Do that. I don't. I also don't remember to go to like Patreon dot com slash the Melting Podcast. Well, I mean, for you to be a patron of yourself would be a little self serving. It would be. <laughs> it would be. But now they can get served by being patrons. They can get served like swag. I don't think that counts as being served. We could serve up some bonus content. Oh, now that one I think uh -huh. they'd like. Patreon backers get physical swag. They also get access to our once a year. Backer only episode, which will be coming up soon for 2018. You get a an all new, never before heard main ingredient story, mm -hmm. and whatever other segments we pull out of our butts. <laughs> Hopefully, it doesn't actually come out of our butts. That's the wrong kind of processed food. <laughs> that is very wrong. <laughs> so let's see. We've talked about iTunes. There's Patreon. Well, there's also shop.spreadshirt.com/slash the melting podcast. There is where they can just get their own physical swag. Yeah, and that's swag that you don't get from being a backer. So, I mean, it's special. It's special. It's swag. exclusive. You yes, want it. You want it. Like the uh, apron that says Lexiconosaur on it. Or a mug with my face. Or a mug with my face. A mug with my mug. <laughs> a mug mug. 
And if you take a picture of it, it'll be a mugshot. <laughs> or if you do a shot in it, it's a mugshot. Why would you only do one shot? It's a big shot. That's a really big shot. That's a big gulp. It's a mugshot. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, moving on. I think I've had enough cheese. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's a little corny in here, too. <laughs> so, now, if they don't have the money to throw at us, which I understand, what else can they throw at us? Words. Words. You could send us... Words. Stories. We are pretty... I don't think we've ever actually been closed to submissions. No. Um, we need main ingredient stories, 5,000 words or fewer on any topic you want. No erotica, please. We do try to keep this work appropriate. Um, if that's too long for you, we also <laughs> desperately, desperately, <laughs> shut up, Aaron. We also desperately need Stoke the Fire stories. Stoke the Fire stories are a flash fiction, 1,500 words or fewer, and those do need to be based on one or more of our open prompts. We always have two prompts open. Yeah. You want to give us prompt number 17? That one is, you have a dinosaur bodyguard. Yeah. Please send us one for that. We've, we've gotten a couple. Please That'll send us up. more for that. Please send us more for that. And uh, prompt number 18, you are informed via phone that your significant other has been in an accident. They're standing right next to you. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, that's a big dun, dun, dun. I like that one. So again, 1,500 words or fewer on one of those prompts or both of those prompts. On all of the prompts. Uh, yeah, seriously. Oh, wait, that's been done. Yes. <laughs> he sent us another one that's on three prompts. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. We've got, we've got another one. Anyway. Yay! Anyway. Yeah, we're learning our word, Shaz. We like the way you guys think. <laughs> um, but seriously. You don't think. Seriously, we need the submissions. If we don't get submissions, we don't have a show. Um, we've got enough to get us through the end of the year. That's pretty much it for right now. So we, we need to. We need stuff. We need stuff. So what can they do? Send us stuff. And we'll use it to feed the masses. Thank you for listening to The Melting Podcast. You can check out our website with submission guidelines and current prompts at themeltingpodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Melting Podcast. Or you can email us themeltingpodcast at gmail.com. The Melting Podcast is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you're free to copy it and share it as long as you don't change it don't sell it, and always link back to the website. Sound effects are by the Free Sound Project. And our theme is by Drew Rich Creek.